Welcome to Killer Women with your host, best-selling author, Danielle Girard. The Killer Women Vodcast is pleased to be a part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. To learn more about Danielle and her books, visit her at www.daniellegirard.com and to access all of our vodcasts, go to youtube.com forward slash authors on the air. And now, Danielle's next killer woman. Hello, and welcome to the Killer Women podcast, a proud member of the Authors on the Air global network with more than 4 million listeners. I am your host, suspense author Danielle Girard, and my guest today is Debbie Babbitt. Debbie was copy director for two major Manhattan publishing companies. She has worked as an actress, playwright, and drama critic. Her first novel, Saving Grace, was named one of the most anticipated thrillers of 2021 by She Reads and voted one of the best debuts of 2021 by Suspense Magazine. First Victim is her second novel and was named one of the buzziest books of 2022 by Buzz Books. Her feature articles have appeared in Crime Reads, Suspense Magazine, and Mystery and Suspense Magazine. Debbie is the daughter of a former federal judge and is married to a criminal defense attorney. She and her husband divide their time between New York and Florida. Welcome, Debbie. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. Great to see you, Danielle. So fun. And it, the research that went into Alice's character, you obviously have easy access because Alice is a judge as well. So tell our listeners, before I start to unpack all the wonderful things about the book, tell our listeners a little bit about First Victim. Well, Alice is a Manhattan Supreme Court judge, and she's presiding over a murder trial. And something about this trial is starting to get to her, and she assumes it might be the stresses of her personal life, because she's actually got a secret that if it got out, could have ramifications both professionally and personally. But that's not the only secret Alice is keeping. Unbeknownst to her, her daughter Alexis has begun a search for her biological father. That search will take Alice to a tiny town in upstate New York, where she will finally face her past and have to choose between justice and revenge. Beautifully. <laughs> it's clear you were an actress. My, my, my elevator pitches are always like, and then, and there's this other thing, and so sideways, and you, oh, I forgot about that person. So beautifully, beautifully spoken. Okay, so tell us, Debbie, what, is the, what was the inspiration for First Victim? Well, like with all my books, everything comes to me in character. And again, we go back to acting. The great Russian director Stanislavski said, character is action. So in this case, I saw a woman coming into the courtroom. She was wearing black robes. So I knew she wasn't the defense attorney or the prosecutor nope. or court officer. So I knew she was a judge. And then she started telling me her story. I know this sounds a little mystical, but... I started to learn more and more about her and then her home life as well. And then she took me on the journey and I started to figure out what to do, when to do it, what was happening in her life, her family members, and of course this trial she's presiding over, which becomes the centerpiece of the part one anyway. Right. Um, so tell, uh, I don't think it gives us any, anything away by telling us a little bit about the trial, right? Yes, it's the, it's the, um, the defendant's charged with the murder of a pregnant woman. And uh, in 2019, uh, Governor Cuomo, there was a whole, 
a whole legislation. I don't want to get into the whole thing, but right, right. A fetus could not be considered a murder victim after that. So uh, the the defendant can't be charged with double homicide, but it's still a, a pretty awful murder, and everyone's up in arms about it. And you've got you know all the anti-abortionists in the courtroom, and it's very difficult for Alice because this harkens back to things in her own life. And of course, she's a woman and a mother, of course. Right. So right. Um, it really uh, hits at the core of womanhood. Yeah. So that's the trial. And the defendant, uh, without giving anything away, decides to represent himself, which does happen on occasion. Yeah. Judges have to allow it if the defendant shows enough knowledge of the law, even if it's rudimentary. Right. And and though most of them get convicted defending themselves. Yeah. So you've got you've got quite an interesting uh, right. thing going on with a case that Alice actually caught by accident because the original judge was hurt in an accident. Yes, which I think is so it's so interesting the idea that if you are a you know and in, in in the judge in Alice's case, you know she has as you said she has trauma in her background um and if you are a woman judge facing a man who's been accused of something that is even peripherally similar to something that's happened to you in your own past, how hard is it to be objective? Right. That's the really hard part for her. And she's never quite faced that as a judge. She started out as a prosecutor, like most judges. So a lot of times trials are weighted toward the prosecution. And the state, of course, has resources defense attorneys don't have. But in this particular case, absolutely, this really cuts to the quick. And with all the stresses in her personal life, quickly um, leading to her feeling an emotional upheaval. Right. And there's actually, so, you know, I think it doesn't also um, give anything away to say that, you know, Alice's own relationship with, you know, the male figures in her life, she has a a wonderful husband uh, who's also a judge. But, you know, but her father left, you know, when she was young. And that is, you know, that is a kind of trauma uh, for young people, men and uh, boys and girls, I think um, that you know they the, how the kids blame themselves. And so there's this quote on three oh five. I, I always sticky tab things I love or write the the page numbers down so I can quote it that I love so much. And I think it speaks to not just this situation uh, and her feelings about her father, but sort of how women deal with their own their shame, their blame, their self blame, and it's. Um, you know, it's basically, she talks about her mother. I'm going to get this right. I want to make sure. Um, So this is referring to her father leaving and her mother told her it had nothing to do with her, that it wasn't her fault. But Alice believed it was just as a part of her belief that what was happening to her was her fault too. And I'm not going to tell too much about what's happening to her, obviously. And I, I think that's so interesting because I think one of the things I love to explore since we're, you know, killer women is, is sort of the way that women deal with blame in situations where, we all like reasonably, logically, we know there's no, there should be no blame on us. Now as children, it's hard because we're not rational, but as adults, we still, we still own that blame as women. And you know, isn't it, it's the first thing we do, blame ourselves. So I want to sort of talk about the idea of culpability, right? Or, or perceived culpability, how, what's the perception of the victim now, not in the case obviously of somebody who's murdered, but in the case of somebody who gets away, you know, why, what do you think we, why do we do that? Are we trained to feel responsible for having put ourselves in a position? You know, I want, I kind of want to talk about that. And what do you want readers to sort of take away um, for that, about that shame? 
Well, that is interesting. There's a big difference between men and women that way. And I think it's how we're socially uh, developed too, that we, women are the nurturers and women are supposed to smooth everything over and keep everything nice. So that when things go wrong, it's hard not to think, well, I should have done this or I should have done that. And I think women question more. And I don't want to say men don't question, but because men are, are socially developed, again, it could be the social development to be problem solvers. They're not looking back. They're not reflecting that way. They're saying we must go forward and now fix this. And what's the next step? And I think women, because they're plagued with self-doubt. They're thinking I could have done it this way. I don't, I don't know if it's it has to do with being a mother and being uh, the one that uh, took care of the family while the men were out hunting yeah. and reading back. Right, right, right. So it's a single-mindedness of purpose. Not that women have more time to think, but I think also um, there are more victims that are women in the world. Men are physically stronger. Yeah. So women tend to think of themselves more as victims anyway. And then it's easy to blame yourself when society also castigates you on a certain level and are you to blame and questions you and makes you exactly. doubt yourself yeah so what's that about is it all social is it all social is part of it in our dna uh it's hard to say i think a lot of it's socialization I yeah do. yeah but it's true i mean you talk about sort of the you know and we see this now all over society you know women who stand up against um you know, se sexual offenders and sexual harassers. And then the, the entire case turns towards what was that woman's part in her own, right? right? And so then. quick to say, you did this or you did that. And it's, it couldn't possibly be the man or he was seduced or he was tempted or it's right. fault. Or you wore the wrong outfit, you know, like you, you know, he can't control himself and therefore you must- right never invite any temptation in any way, shape or form. It is really interesting. And I think as an, you know, as a judge, and now you, you know, your husband is a judge. So you see this from a, you know, a very intimate perspective. I, I think you do, you know, this is a court drama largely. I mean, right. you know, it's, it, it alternates between being in court and then being not in court. Um, and because of the stressors, as you said, with Alice's personal life, which, you know, are, really well drawn and very real. I, I felt like what was going on with her husband, you know, as a course, very real. And I don't want to give that away. You have to read the book, but, um, <laughs> but it's, a, you know, it's a court drama and you obviously make that feel so authentic. I never feel like we're sort of, I'm never, and I'm you no, know, I have zero background in anything legal. Um, and I don't even read that many, you know, court dramas. Cause I just don't never, I never know that much about them. But I think the thing that's great about this book is it's not, we're not in the court all the time. It's not so much about the procedure of the court. Although obviously, you know, enough to know how to do that. It's very much more about sort of this one woman's journey in this very sort of short amount of time in dealing with this case. So tell us about sort of, you know, do you just sit your husband down and, and interview him? Have you lived with him long enough that you sort of know this all? Tell us that part. Well, uh, my father was a federal judge. Oh, that's your father. That's right. Okay. Right. Um, but he never brought his work home, except I'll tell you a very quick story. This is so yes. strange. Well, one time I came home from college and I found out our phones were being tapped by the FBI. I didn't know why. And then we get a call one night. We're having dinner that someone had taken uh, a maid hostage and was demanding to see my father in his chambers. Now, he was a bankruptcy judge. He was a bankruptcy judge for the Southern District. He wasn't a criminal uh, in the criminal area. But so we ran, we ran downtown, but they didn't wait for my father. And a police officer put on his robes 
And when the man who took the maid hostage reached into his pocket, the cop shot him dead. And the man did not have a gun. He was not armed. My father was so upset that whatever reasons they couldn't wait, it was so long ago. But I remember seeing the bullet hole over his desk. Right. <laughs> and the wall. It was unbelievable. But aside from that, he really, I, I didn't learn a lot. He didn't bring a lot home, but I did learn a lot from my husband. Yes. yes. And, and I sat in on a lot of trials. Oh, you did? Okay. I got access that way. And then I got to know the court officers and they tell yeah. me this judge is here and you can watch the judge. And this was all actually before COVID. Oh, yes. So right. This was gestating with me for a while before I really sat down and wrote it. So I, I had a lot. I got a lot. And then I'd ask my husband a million questions. Yes. Any, and then How he nice. Vetted, and then he had to vet it because my editor said, we must make sure everything's correct. We can't get right? anything wrong because of all the readers who write in and say, you got this wrong. Oh, I, I know. got that wrong, yes. which is why I made my towns fictitious, some of them, because you don't yeah. want someone to think that wasn't Main Street. But anyway. Right, right. So, and so my husband, Ted, vetted it. Yes. And so that helped, even though, you know, it's only the first part of the book, but that was important because it's a lot of, you want to get it right. And there's a lot of detail. A well, lot that, of, right. And it's, it's so interesting, like to be as authors, there's this, there's a, there's a whole, our, our, our worlds are so intertwined with the getting things a hundred percent correctly, authenticity, you know, procedure places, if you're going to use real ones, um, you know, the way weapons work, all of those things. Oh and my yet, God, yes. I know. And yet then you can, the rest of it, I mean, you can take us as you know, far fetched as you want, but the moment you sort of mess up something that readers expect to be correct, you sort of lost your footing on the whole thing. Well, so, I'll tell you something interesting. Okay. So everything's ready. The edits are done. We got the books got to get out. Okay. Well, I write to my agent. I don't know why this didn't come up. I write to him talking about a Glock figures into it. A right. Right. And he says, that doesn't have, that can't happen. And I know these things. I said, Jim, why didn't you tell me this months ago? Yeah. Well, I went online and I, all these military gun guys are emailing me. We're going back and forth. This one saying this can happen. This one saying this can happen. I'm like, I have to get my book in. I have to get this right. right. Oh my God. That was a lot harder than the legal because yeah, this well, area, I don't know at all. This is right. not my, but I need the weapons. I mean, I love dealing with the psychological stuff. And right. then you have to get the logistics and that's the hard part for me. I'd rather just deal with stuff in their head and what they're feeling and what's going on. You know? Right. Cause you, as long as you motivate that, right. As long as you motivate that, you don't, it, you know, cause psychology can, you know, a, a trigger can, can manifest itself a thousand different ways in someone's brain, but you know, yeah. but it, uh, but a trigger, an actual trigger can only really go off a certain number of ways. Right. Exactly. And I don't yes. want all these people writing to me saying, you, that would never happen. Blah, 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 blah. And I said, just what I need. And these guys are real. They're these gun clubs. You have no idea. They're rabid. <laughs> oh no. I, I, I think I might know. Um, and there's, you know, there's some wonderful resources, um, uh, writer, cops and writers on Facebook is a wonderful um, Facebook group you can join and then you can post a question because sometimes I find it's not just you know it's not just um, a procedure somewhere but it's like a procedure in a certain state or you know that's, or, that's true right mm -hmm. it's your state. exactly mm -hmm. that's good. I'm gonna look that up thank you yeah you're welcome. That's a that you got to <laughs> we got to share our resources, right? So I this is your second novel, um, yes. and I did I have not yet read Saving Grace. Um, and I, one of the things I I love about this book a lot is you know 
is that the sort of we're talking a lot about relationships between women, right? This is Alice and her daughter Alexis. It's Alice and her own mother. Um, the way that um, we keep secrets from each other. Um, again, sort of probably feeding into our shame. So is Saving Grace also sort of, does it also delve into those relationships? Well, that's women? interesting. In First Victim, there's also a best friend, Connie. That's why it's narrated yes. from all three points of view. And yes. that's why I always ask people, is it all three different women on the cover or three sides of the same? Yes, one? yeah. Oh, I, interesting, right. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. I, I, I actually think the judge is the one in the bottom because it looks like she's wearing robes somehow, the neckline. Yeah, yeah. That's so funny. Well, and the the woman at the top to me looks a little younger, like it maybe yes. it's, that's Alexis, right? Yeah, yeah. And that interesting. could be in the middle, right? Mm, I know. That's so interesting, yeah. They did a great job. But yeah, Grace, is. it's interesting because that character came to me as an 11 year old orphan living in the South, if you can believe it. Oh, wow. Just, <laughs> so she just, starts, and I've never been. The, all your own experience, I was gonna say, all your own experiences, it sounds like. <laughs> so I had to figure her out. But what happened was that cross cuts back in time with, um, with Mary Grace as the sheriff of the town 24 years later, because mm -hmm. girls go missing when she's a kid and another girl goes missing. But at that point, Mary Grace is the sheriff and a single mother herself. So, so, yeah. so we have a character who's an orphan feeling her parents left her. They both died at the same time. So she, and she goes to live with her aunt and uncle and it's not that warm a relationship or with her cousin. And then she becomes a mother. So now you've had a, you have a different kind of situation. Right. And so, and then she has a teacher she loved who, who took her under her wing. So there are female, yes, there are female relationships in that book as well. That's interesting. And my editor actually made the point that I seem to choose law enforcement because Mary Grace is sheriff. Mm -hmm. Alice is a judge. Right, right. And in, in my third book I'm writing now, I'll tell you a little about later, The Man yeah. on the Train, my main character is a male, but his wife is a prosecutor. So yeah. it's interesting that I tend to gravitate toward law, maybe because, I don't know, law is the law black and white or the shades of gray? What, as my husband tells me, the law is what the courts and judges say it is. So that's kind of interesting. Well, so, and it's, I think especially in this day and age, right? We have a lot, We, I mean, with, with, with what, you know, this, the changes in the Supreme Court, we're seeing a lot of different types of uh, the objectivity thing is, 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 you know, is question, I mean, it's a question, is it possible? And that's actually kind of, you know, my next question for you. It's, you know, Alice rides the line really carefully about sort of what is her job as a judge what must she allow and now she has you know i mean she, like when you when you're prosecute you know when you're the judge you've got if it, if the attorney wants to approach the bench or see you in chambers you know now you have a, a and you know a man who's been accused of a very violent crime who's sort of right up in your space right exactly it's difficult and when you're having things going on in your life and you wonder about judges sometimes. I actually spoke to a few. I actually ran into one that my husband introduced me to. She was running around the reservoir where oh. Alice runs. And, you know, she'd been doing it a long time. She was thinking of retiring. And, you know, she said at times it, the job gets to you depending on your cases. But when you have a case like this, where things going on, it's so hard to be objective. And that's what's happening to Alice. Of all things, if she were a prosecutor, she could say, convict the bastard. Right. If she, was a defense attorney, she could say, I'll get him off, even if he's guilty. 
you know, and that could be, that could be conflicting anyway. Oh, right. But a judge who has to make sure she's the modicum of, of impartiality and she's got to be the model of propriety. And I mean, she cannot make a false step. She cannot make a false step. Right. And that's so interesting because even if she, you know, even if she is watching this thing unfold and thinking the evidence is stacked against him, he should be convicted. Any misstep on her part means mistrial. And then the whole thing has to start over, right? Exactly. And she'd be reversed on appeal. So she has to be really careful. That's one thing judges hate is to be reversed on appeal. I can so imagine. And he's defending himself. So she has to be even more careful to make sure that nobody steps on his rights. I mean, he has the right to represent himself. I yeah, know. It's an, and he's a bit creepy. That yeah. man is creepy. So, you know, <laughs> here's a woman who's because of things going on in her own life, not sleeping that well and right. All these, and then the stress of things happening in her marriage and with her daughter, it's like, you know, you realize there are so, I mean, to show up with that kind of focus. I mean, right. There's one moment where she loses focus and yeah. she's like, oh my God, like, can you, I can't even imagine a job. I feel like all I do all day is lose focus. So I can't <laughs> even imagine a job <laughs> where you have to be like, so on it. Right all the time that and that the stress of that and that's right. why you know she's you have to rely on crutches here and there you know which she never thought she'd have to but right this is right. and you know it's it's about it's what drama is i remember when i was writing plays you anything you write is always the moment of crisis you're not writing about characters everyday lives you're writing about that moment right. so this is that moment in her life right. where everything's on the line and she's got to do and it's a high profile trial too right so uh, yeah that's and that's another that's the thing i love too when people do is they sort of take somebody who's and so alice is there's nothing frail about alice there's nothing you know she she's formidable she's smart she's hardworking. she's you know honorable i mean she's doing she's sort of set up everything right she's protected her daughter she's you know protecting her you know her family and yet you know on top of not only is there issues, you know, in her marriage, but also with her daughter and now this case in her own past. It's like you literally, Debbie, you just drowned this lady in, <laughs> in, in sort of the moment that all shit, you know, goes to hell in a handbasket. It is. And, I, and it's a lo it's a lovely it's I mean, it's not I mean, it's, it's stress. It's like as a reader, you're like, oh, my God, Alice. <laughs> Well, but, you know, Lisa Gardner said that. She said, oh my God, my heart, Alice. Yes. I was with her every step. I couldn't, oh, I was feeling for her. What's going to happen next? Poor Alice. And I'm like, you know, when you're the author writing her, you're in it. Yes. But you're not thinking, you're not outside yourself or outside the character thinking that because and, you're just in it with her. <laughs> and you know so much more. The other thing about it is we, there's a lot of things we don't know. So we're like, what is happening? You know, which is a, this, this is a sign of a really, you know, well-told story that we really are like, let's, you know, I, I'd like to go to bed because it's midnight, but I can't go to bed because I, you know, I'm in the middle of uh, part two and I have to keep going. So, um, okay. So you started to sort of tell us um, what is next. Um, tell us about the story, the man on the train. Yes. Yeah, so this, so Guy, his name's Guy. <laughs> came to me, um, this is actually my first fully male character that came to me, and I saw this commuter who takes the Metro North every day to work from Scarsdale, uh, and he sees a beautiful young woman on the train, and uh, he's married, 
but his life too. He's going through things in his life, things he's aware of, things he's not aware of. You know, in every thriller, there's a past, right? Always. So of course. Yeah, of course. So so he and also what happens in these books is the characters ripe for whatever's going to happen. Yeah. They're like in that space where things can happen. Right. So he's in that space where things can happen. And now he's got temptation. What does he do? And it's from his point of view, but it also goes into his wife's point of view. As I said, she's a prosecutor and some other characters who come into mm. it. And part two actually takes place in Montauk, which I know well because I've lived in Amagansett for 25 years. Oh my gosh, I, right. I just came from a big book tour in the Hamptons. So, and I was interviewed by Montauk Live TV and I said, to wait till you see my next book. I couldn't believe it. But Montauk is very interesting town because it was the last to be gentrified. It was a small fishing village that okay. be not developed like the Hamptons. And now, of course, it's become right. It's like, the, like it's the easternmost tip of Long Island. You can't go any farther east than that. So I thought okay. that was a great setting. So great. Of the book. And again, a character who goes to an you know, another place. Mm -hmm. Yes. So that's interesting. That totally, that happens here. And it sounds like in the first book, you know, she's in the town where, um, Red saving grace. Yes, mm -hmm. you're right. She does not leave that town. She does not. But, that, well, so, but that's in two time periods. Yeah. It's oh, okay. Saving. Interesting. So the other thing I thought I think is interesting about this and not everybody, not everybody does this is the idea. And you just mentioned part two, the idea of the books in parts. You know, we don't see that all the time. Can you talk about sort of like what, you know, how you, do you think about the structure of the book um, in terms of sort of the, the parts of it? How does that work for you? Yeah, sometimes it's interesting you say that because I usually know that, especially these last two books that we're going to end up in another place. Yeah. How we get there, I'm not sure, but we get there. And it just seemed to me that um, especially, and I did the same thing actually in Saving Grace. Saving Grace, interestingly enough, was now and then. Okay. And the then characters, the then chapters actually had headings for each chapter, but not the now sections. And okay. then, but part two, that's what got me to the parts. Part one in Saving Grace was now and then. And I knew I needed a part two because part two was only now because now things are starting to come together mm -hmm. even with memories, but we don't go back to then. Got so it. that stayed with me, I think, for First Victim, because I knew there was such a shift to the past. It would have to be another part. Right. And in Man on the Train, the same thing. And then it even goes beyond Montauk. It's uh -huh. almost like the segregated parts of the character's life. But then as they're starting to, past and present, starting to come together, they right. I need to have a segregation, but yet you felt it was moving. Yeah. That I is think that... Yeah, I think it's interesting that you do. And I, I do think that's a, you know, and maybe it's the way you look at like a three act structure because you're a playwright. Yeah, that's interesting. Maybe. Yeah, that's um, interesting. I, d I don't see that all the time, but I actually, I appreciate it. I was trying to find a way. Um, and I appreciate that they have, you know, that there's sort of, it's a, it's a notice to the reader that, okay, we're, we're making a shift. Um, and I, you know, I, I enjoyed it. I like that. I like the idea also of it's a really clear sort of, okay, we're, you know, the end of act one and oh, everything's about to sort of get really hairy. You know, I, I appreciate, <laughs> I appreciate that as well. So when, um, when do, can we expect um, the man on the train? Summer, summer, 2023. That's what we're shooting for. I'm working furiously to finish up revisions. I'm working night and day. 
This oh. is my, this is my break, Danielle. I decided to take a break. I didn't go to Bashkana. I'm just. I know. I know. I know. Well, we you had a great time there, I know. And congratulations to you. Very exciting. Well, that was, did you watch that whole thing? I actually didn't win an award. No, I but just, I know, but just being, are you kidding? Just being nominated? Are you kidding? Well, anyway, um, you're so sweet. But um, but anyway, well, this is super exciting. I really, I, I love it. And actually, I'm going to show the cover because it is interesting if I can get it to not shine my lights. Um, that there's, you know, this woman's <laughs> face and then the you know top and bottom and she is maybe wearing um robes which i think is really interesting like um and those and uh, yeah and the two women and i and that's right Con, you know connie also you know it's interesting to talk about so connie is the friend alice's child you know childhood friend and it is interesting how we um you know, how she is still live, like you know experiencing the trauma you know of their shared history so uh, and we don't really ever leave our past behind. And I think that's a lesson from this book too. Never, I know. It always seems to find us, right? It it's does. Amazing. Maybe that's why people like thrillers because they, they they feel that we get to resolve the past somehow in the present. Yeah, I think that's, I think a satisfying thriller is a really lovely way to be like, okay, you can put your past behind you, but you might have to kill some people on the way. So that's <laughs> that's why we don't do it as much in real life, right? <laughs> no killing people in real life. I've somebody told me that was a rule. Um, okay, so so um, summer of uh, 2023 for the man on the train, saving uh, saving grace and first victim already available by Debbie Babbitt. Debbie, tell us where people can find you online, social media, website, all that great stuff. Right, debbiebabbitt.com, and no one ever spells my last name right. In fact, it keeps autocorrecting the wrong last name spelling, but it's B-A-B-I-T-T.com, and I'm on all the social media, uh, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Goodreads, and uh, you can, uh, Saving Grace is out in trade paperback now, but it's also out in mass market from Harlequin. Oh, interesting. Yeah, they, they they selected it for the Worldwide Mystery and Suspense Club. So Congratulations. it's a small paperback. I just want to show you very quickly. Yes. They had to change the cover. I guess that was part yeah, of it. Yeah, that's whatever. part of the deal because the publisher owns the cover. Let's right. see. Bring so, it. Oh, yeah, that's beautiful. So it's a backpack with some blood on it. So it reminds people of Stephen King, I was told. But anyway, so this, that's, <laughs> this, is, that's little book. this has been out um, since August. Yes. And then the trade paperback of Saving Grace is out at the same time as First Victim and Hardcover. And they're all available in Kindle, ebook, uh, Audible. Uh, by Black. Yeah. yeah, so everywhere you can find the books everywhere. All that's, the local bookstores. Yeah, that's and I, right. So support your local bookstores is always a wonderful way to do it. And I'm sure you have some signed copies around in, in New York City and... Oh, all over, uh, all over the Hamptons, uh, uh, the corner bookstore that did my launch has signed yes. copies and there are still signed copies at Mysterious Bookshop where um, next Thursday evening, if anyone's in New York, it'll also be live streamed. I'll be in conversation with Wendy Walker. Oh, in I love person. Wendy. In so person. Fun. Nice. So fun. Well, nice. this is so exciting. We are so, I, you know, it was a one, so fun to read. Um, and um, so fun to get an insight into, you know, a different world, because as I said, I don't have that experience. And I loved reading about a female judge. I have not, I can't think that I've done that before. So that was really, really fun. And I look forward to reading, you know, about a female prosecutor, which I also don't know. I'm sure I have, but I can't remember. So <laughs> I, I'm ready for another one is what I'm saying. So um, it's been so fun to have you today, Debbie. Thank you so much for joining us. 
thank you for having me. And it's great to, I mean, we met briefly at Thriller Fest, but it's, this is very nice. And you're a good example for me. You've been writing a while <laughs> and I'm looking forward to getting into some of your books. Oh, you're so sweet. I really appreciate that. Well, thank you everybody for joining us on the Killer Woman podcast today with Debbie Babbitt. Stay tuned. We'll be back again next week with a new Killer Woman. Oh, Bye. Cool. can't wait. Thanks, Danielle. Bye-bye.